0: In this episode of 9 I Talks, Amos Oz, the legendary Israeli writer, returns to 9 y with his most powerful novel in decades, Judas. Author Jonathan Wilson joins him in conversation. It was recorded on November 14th, 2016,
1: in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. Good evening. Sometimes you're lucky enough to come of age as a reader when a great writer bursts onto the scene or hits his or her stride. So it was for me in the early 1970s when I began to read Amos Oz's novels, My Michael, Touch the Water, Touch the Wind, and Elsewhere Perhaps. I'd already left London to spend two summers on kibbutz and would be there for a third long autumn stay during the Yom Kippur War. My aspirational life as a young man and a young writer was already, to some extent, preoccupied with Israel and would continue to be so. But it wasn't until I immersed myself in the unfailingly lovely language of Amos Oz's novels, and I'm talking about the English translations, which I'm sure drop at least some of the poetry from the Hebrew, that the country, through a kind of alchemy that turned the real into the imagined and vice versa, fully opened itself to me. You don't know when you begin to involve yourself with the living writer that he or she might accompany you through all your life and that you will wait, the novelist unaware of both your presence in the world and your eager anticipation as the months and the years pass for the next book and the book after that. Luckily for me, In the case of Amos Oz, he had and has many gifts to bestow, both large and small. Big picture essays that take on the twists and turns of Israeli politics down the years. Novels that take you here and there through history and place. Novels of the British Mandate, like Panther in the Basement, which held a special interest for me. Stories of the kibbutz, like Where the Jackals Howl. Tales of love and darkness before he wrote, his haunting, blazing memoir, A Tale of Love and Darkness. Amos Oz has an extraordinary and far-reaching erudition, encompassing philosophy, history, psychology, and literature. But in addition to the ideational features of his books, you also carry with you from his fiction the way light touches stone in Jerusalem as if the light burned from within the stone or how the walls stand washed of dust after rain, or a snatch of dialogue, or the emblematic way that a character dresses or speaks, or as in Judas, the scent of violets with a hint of starch and steam ironing that always accompanies the beautiful and diamond-hard Atalia when she enters a room, or an arresting or lyrical opening sentence, I have been called a traitor many times in my life, or, Early in the morning, before sunrise, the cooing of pigeons in the bushes begins to drift through her open window. So you sit at home, or you travel, and you wait. Of course, you read other books, and you have other favorite writers. But at the same time that you enjoy them, you are aware that you are waiting. The author gets older, as you do. His concerns change, as do yours. The politics of his country ramify and complicate. You need a guide, and your author comes to the rescue. You wait, and every couple of years, if you're lucky, a new book appears on the shelves. You feel as if it has been written only for you. Chekhov famously said of Tolstoy's greatest novel, not a single problem is solved in Anna Karenina, but it satisfies completely because the problems are perfectly posed. <laughs> the same is true of Amos Oz's novels. And the problems are posed through the lives not of world historical figures, fictional generals, or politicians, but through ordinary characters, often living in battled lives and struggling with the quotidian. James Joyce said that history was a nightmare in which he was trying to get a good night's sleep. For Israeli writers, the insomnia has been relentless and universal. We ourselves are now about to enter a long period of sleeplessness. (laughs) Amos Oz's characters, wonderfully human in both their frailty and their strength, are inevitably tossed about by big history and often transformed by events that are entirely beyond their control but they, without fail, received the gift of their author's empathy and understanding. Be kind, the Talmud admonishes us, for everyone you know is involved in a great struggle. That would seem to be Amos Oz's credo and underpins his insistence, as recorded in his lecture when he received the Goethe Prize in 2005 that imagining the other is not only an aesthetic tool, but also a major moral imperative. It is the job of the fiction writer to pose problems in a way that often brings us great pleasure. But with Amos Oz's writing as a whole, we get something extra. For in his discursive prose, he poses the problems, but sometimes he also offers solutions. How lucky we are to have him. Please welcome Amos Oz. Thank you so
0: much. Thank 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 you. Thank you, Jonathan, for this beautiful and heartwarming introduction. Actually, I'd be happy to sit there backstage for the rest of tonight, (laughs) listening to you introducing me. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, friends, good evening. Shalom, Erev Tov. Let me begin by telling you what I'm not going to do tonight. I'm afraid I'm not going to analyze the results of your last presidential elections for you. Because I am still stunned, and I'm still trying to stomach it. And I love the American people, and I love this country. And I'm sad. I will speak to you about my latest novel, Judas. And I will begin by reading a so short section from the very beginning of the novel, the opening chapter of the novel in Hebrew and then jonathan wilson will read the same and more in english hinei <speaking> kan sipur mi mei shel sof 59 shnat 60 yesh ba sipur yesh בלי מענה. בכמה מן הבניינים עדיין ניכרים סימני המלחמה שחצתה את העיר לפני עשר שנים. ברקע תוכלו לשמוע נגינת אקורדיון רחוקה או צלילי כלות הנפש של מפוחית פה לפנות ערב מאחורי טריס מוגף. בהרבה דירות בירושלים אפשר למצוא על קיר הסלון את מערבולות הכוכבים של ון או את רתיחת הברושים שלו. ומחצלות קש עדיין פרוסות בחדרים הקטנים וימי ציקלג או דוקטור ג'יוואגור מונח הפוך ופתוח. Al bad dolek neft pagaz, Everyone got Doctor Zivago, right? <laughs>
1: Thank you. Here is a story from the winter days of the end of 1959 and the beginning of 1960. It is a story of error and desire, of unrequited love, and of a religious question that remains unresolved. Some of the buildings still bore the marks of the war that had divided the city a decade earlier. In the background, you could hear the distant strains of an accordion or the plaintive sound of a harmonica from behind closed shutters. In many flats in Jerusalem, you might find Van Gogh's starry well whirlpool skies, or his shimmering cypresses on the living room wall, rush mats on the floors of the small rooms, and Dr. Zhivago, or Yizhar's Day of Ziklag, lying open face down on a foam sofa bed that was covered with a length of Middle Eastern cloth and piled with embroidered cushions. A paraffin heater burned all evening long with a blue flame. In a corner of the room, a tasteful bunch of thorn twigs sprouted from a mortar shell casing. At the beginning of December, Schmoll Ash abandoned his studies at the university and decided to leave Jerusalem because his relationship had broken down, because his research had stalled, and especially because his father's finances had collapsed and Schmoll had to look for work. Schmoll was a stocky, bearded young man of around 25, shy, emotional, socialist, asthmatic, liable to veer from wild enthusiasm to disappointment and back again. His shoulders were broad, his neck was short and thick, and his fingers too were thick and short, as if they each lacked a knuckle. From every pore of Schmoll Ash's face and neck curled wiry hairs like steel wool, This beard continued upward till it merged with the tousled hair of his head and downward to the curling thicket of his chest. From a distance, he always seemed, summer and winter alike, to be agitated and pouring with sweat. But close up, it was a pleasant surprise to discover that instead of a sour smell of sweat, his skin somehow exuded a delicate odor of talcum powder. He would be instantly intoxicated by new ideas, provided they were wittily dressed up and involved some paradox. But he also tended to tire quickly, possibly on account of an enlarged heart and his asthma. His eyes filled easily with tears, which caused him embarrassment and even shame. A kitten mewling by a wall on a winter's night, having lost its mother, perhaps, and darting, heart-rending glances at Shmoor while rubbing itself against his leg would make his eyes well up. Or if at the end of some mediocre film about loneliness and despair at the Edison Theater, it turned out that the bad guy had a heart of gold, he could be choked with tears. And if he spotted a thin woman with a child, total strangers, coming out of Shari Tzedek Hospital, hugging each other and sobbing, he would start weeping too. In those days, it was usual to see crying as something that women did. A weeping male aroused revulsion and even faint disgust, rather like a woman with a beard. Shmuel was ashamed of this weakness of his and made an effort to control it, but in vain. Deep down, he shared the ridicule that his sensitivity aroused and was reconciled to the thought that there was some flaw in his virility and that, therefore, it was likely that his life would be sterile and that he would achieve nothing much.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. The English translation is by my wonderful translator, Nicholas de Lange. Judas is a novel of ideas. There are not many of those in contemporary American literature for some reason. A few more in European literature, but not enough. When I say a novel of ideas, and also a novel of coming of age, a Bildungsroman, I want to make it very clear that Judas is not a manifesto, not even a bunch of contrasting manifestos. It is, in my view, a piece of chamber music, a string trio, or if I count the ghosts, a string quintet or a string sixtet. And it's a novel about how three total strangers, each one of them coming from a totally different planet, change each other in the course of one winter, three months, really. They not only change each other in the course of three months, they also almost love each other at the end of those three months, which I regard as a minor secular miracle. Now, treason and loyalty are among the central topics of this novel, although, at least in my view, they are not the heart of the novel. In Western history, as all of you know, Judas is the ultimate traitor, the most loathsome, the most ugly, the most despicable traitor, greedy, lacking conscious, sly, pretending, contemptible. In every Christian language that I checked, the word Judas is synonymous to the word traitor. Look at the Oxford Dictionary and you will see Judas equals traitor. You call a person Judas, you are actually spitting in his or her face. And indeed, in all the 30 languages in which this novel appears, it is simply called, titled, Judas. This is enough of a provocation, but not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, I had to call it Habsoa al Pi Yehuda, the gospel according to Judas, simply because the name Yehuda, Judas in Hebrew, is a very common first name, like Simon or Jonathan or David in English. Here is a, an honest disclosure. My father's first names were Yehuda Aryeh. My young son Daniel's middle name is Yehuda after my father. So I am the son of Judas and the father of Judas. Uh, Judas Iscariot in the Gospels, in the New Testament, is in my view the Chernobyl of Christian anti-Semitism in the last 2,000 years, and recently Islamic anti-Semitism is also adapting Judas as the ultimate representative of all Jews. Every Jew is a Judas. You know, it's difficult for a little child, say in Germany, who hears this horrible story for the first time from a parent, let's say a three-year-old German child, very difficult to draw the line between Jude and Judas, Jew and Judas. Or in Spanish, if you wish, the line between Judas and Judios. Judas and Jews, and so is the case in many European languages. Um, in the eyes of Jew haters, all of us are treacherous. All of us are god killers. All of us are greedy and dishonest. Gershom Wald, the crippled old man in this story, reveals a memoir from his youth. He travels in a train in Poland many years ago in the same compartment with two Catholic nuns, an elderly, respectably-looking old woman and a young, pretty, a angelic young nun. And he takes a Hebrew newspaper out of his pocket and reads it. And the old nun is very surprised, and she asks politely, excuse me, sir, you are reading a Jewish paper, aren't you? And the man says, yes, I am Jewish, and I'm about to migrate to Jerusalem and settle there. Silence. The young angelic nun says, close to tears, he was so sweet, how could you do that to him? And Gershomval says, Young lady, you know, when that happened in Jerusalem, I wasn't there. I had a dentist appointment on the same <laughs> morning. Another honest disclosure. This happened to me, not in Poland, in another European country. Train compartment, two nuns one elderly respectable, one stunningly good looking and angelic looking. I took out of my pocket. It was not a newspaper. It was a Hebrew book. You are reading a Jewish book? Yes, I'm a Jew from Israel. I'm, I'm an Israeli. And the young nun said, how could you? He was so sweet. How could you? And to this day, I kick myself for not telling her that I was not there on the crucifixion. I had a dentist appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Gershon Wald also says, consider, not everyone can wake up in the morning, brush his teeth, drink a cup of coffee, and kill God. You have to be mightier than God Almighty. And you have to be endlessly vicious and corrupt to do that. The story of Judas in the Gospels is not an innocent story. I think this is the most terrible story ever told. Firstly, because it's a lousy story. Any decent editor should have cut it out. (laughs) The villain is stereotypical and ugly and repulsive and, and terrible. The story is unlikely and illogical. It's not an innocent story. This story is responsible for more bloodshed, more innocent bloodshed, than any other story ever told in history. This story, as I said, is the Chernobyl of Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years. Pogroms, persecutions, expulsions, inquisition, mass murder, and finally the Holocaust. Much of this originates from the stereotype of the ugly Jew in this story. Think, for instance, on Judas in very famous and much-celebrated paintings of the Last Supper in Renaissance art. There is the marvelous Jesus Christ with a halo round his head, more beautiful and attractive than beauty itself. There are 11 uh, uh, disciples. 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 Good looking, Aryan, blonde, very often blue eyes, tall. And in the corner of the table, there is this tiny, ugly little Semitic type dark, big ears, swing, squinting eye, huge, crooked nose, thick lips rotten teeth, and an ugly, vicious smile on his lips. This was not invented by the Nazis. This was not established by Der Stürmer. This comes from the heights of Renaissance <coughs> art and earlier on from the early beginnings of Christian art. This is us, ladies and gentlemen. This is us. Jesus Judas in the Last Supper. Now, I was a 16-year-old student in Kibbutz Huldah. And I was a compulsive reader. And I realized pretty early that I have to read the Gospels, the New Testament. You know, they never teach the New Testament in Jewish schools, here or in Europe or in Israel. They never do. I realized that unless I read the Gospels, I will never be able to understand Renaissance art or Bach's music, or the novels of Dostoevsky. So when my classmates, the tough, large, strong, good-looking boys, spent the evenings on the basketball yards or chasing girls, I was hopeless in both. I went to the library and read the Gospels, (coughs) seeking comfort in Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I loved him. I loved his simpleness, his directness, his tenderness, his poetic, marvelous poetic creativity, his wonderful sense of humor, his warmth. I argued with him, to be sure, there are never two Israelis who agree with one another. (laughs) I disagreed with Jesus about the idea of universal love. I thought this was a childish idea. I think there is not a Possibility, not a chance of universal love. It's against human nature. I disagree with him about forgive them because they know not what they are doing. Yes, I could agree with him about forgiving. Sometimes we have to forgive. But they know not what they are doing? Turning the whole of humanity into moral infantiles? Wrong, I said. Jesus, you are wrong. When we inflict pain on others, we know very well what we are doing. We still do it sometimes, but we know what we are doing. So I disagreed with him, but I loved him. But then the story about Judas and the 30 pieces of silver and the kiss of the traitor, the most notorious kiss of history, in history, more famous than the kiss of Romeo and Juliet, and the gold killing this story infuriated me, and and, and I, I... I rebelled against it, not as a Jew, not for theological or chauvinistic reasons. It was the little detective in me which rejected the story and hated it. It was illogical. It was unacceptable. First and foremost, I asked myself, how much money were those most famous 30 pieces of silver? Most famous money in the whole of human history. Google had not existed in (laughs) those days. I'll tell you a secret, even today I don't know how to use it. (laughs) But it was easy to find in the encyclopedia that the 30 pieces of silver were roughly the equivalent of a little more than 600 US dollars in today's currency. It's a handsome sum of money, but it's not a huge huge money. And Judas, unlike the other disciples, he was not a poor fisherman from Galilee. He was a wealthy landowner who had orchards and fields and slaves and servants. Why would he sell his master, his rabbi, his God, his spiritual father for $600? And if he did, why would he, would he immediately after go and hang himself? And above all, I asked myself, Why would anyone, anyone at all, pay Judas even one piece of silver, even a dime, for kissing Jesus, thus identifying him to the jailers who came to arrest him when Jesus was very well known in the whole of Jerusalem? He preached in street corners. He created a scandal at the gates of the temple by turning over the tables of the money changers he forgot for a moment that he was Jesus Christ and he was against violence. He was very angry and he violently turned over the, the tables of the money changer. Everybody in Jerusalem knew him. And when the, the the messengers of the priesthood came to arrest him, he did not shave his beard or wear a sombrero or claim that he was not Jesus, he was Donald Trump. <laughs> Why kiss him and betray him? Who should paid Judas even a a dime for for identifying a man whom everybody knew. The whole story was stupid, ugly, hateful, racist, and illogical. Uh, In my novel in, in Judas, Shmuel Ash, the protagonist, offers an alternative version. According to Shmuel Ash, Judas was not a traitor. He was the most loyal of all the disciples. He was the most devoted one. In fact, in Shmoel Ash's version, he believed in Jesus much more than Jesus ever believed in himself. Judas, in Shmoel's version, was dispatched by the priesthood in Jerusalem to spy on this miracle, rural miracle worker from Galilee, we hear all kinds of rumors about healing the sick and conducting village miracles. Please go and find out what's the real story behind it. And Judas goes and he is dressed in rugs and he joins the followers of Jesus and he follows them. And at some point he experiences a change of heart. He believes that Jesus is the redeemer. He believes that Jesus is the son of God. He's in love with Jesus, although he's older than Jesus. He's in love with him. He thinks Jesus is God. In fact, he doesn't love God himself, the God of the Jews, whom Judas regards as vindictive and angry and sometimes violent and cruel. He loves the son more than he loves the father. But being a man of the world, Judas realizes that working village miracles in Galilee would not take Jesus anywhere. Okay, people will admire him here and there. Some rumors will travel around the villages. But this is not going to change the world. There are many miracle workers in Galilee. Then and today as well. Judas is a a man of the world. He believes that Jesus must go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he must perform the greatest miracle of all times. He should get crucified and walk off the cross, alive and healthy and intact, and say to the crowds, love one another. And this will be the redemption of the world. The whole world will go down on their knees. Jesus will will say, love one another. And the kingdom of heaven will begin. This miracle must be conducted in Jerusalem, the eve of the greatest holiday, Passover, with hundreds of thousands of pilgrim makers coming from all the corners of the country and from other countries. And the Romans will be there, and the Arabs, and the Edomites, and the Greeks. The whole world will watch prime time on television. And this will change the world. This will be the redemption. Jesus is reluctant. He is not at all happy to go to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, he is not at all happy to get crucified. In fact, he is terrified. And the Gospels, the New Testament, is full of manifestations of Jesus' insecurity and physical fear of death. He doesn't want to die. And Judas keeps telling him, in Shmuel Ashes' version, "You can do it. You have revived the dead." You walked on the, do- on the water. You healed the sick. You turned stones into bread and water into wine. You will make it. You can do it. You will show them. You will change the world, but you must do it. Be brave. Do it. Even in the last night, the last supper, Jesus still hesitates. He says to his Father in heaven, if you can remove this cup from me, please do. I don't want to be crucified. Now it's not simple to arrange a crucifixion for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Nobody is too impressed by him. Jerusalem then and now is full of redeemers and messiahs. (laughs) Jews from all provinces of the country, they come to Jerusalem calling themselves the Messiah and having a formula for instant redemption. The priests are not particularly interested. The Romans regard him as yet another crazy Jew drunk with God. Judas has to use his contacts, pull many strings, make many telephone calls to arrange for Jesus this prime time crucifixion on the eve of the big holiday of Passover in the presence of the whole world. He cannot, even he cannot achieve a solo crucifixion. He has to compromise on a crucifixion between two minor criminals. Then Jesus is crucified. And he bleeds on the cross. And he cries and screams on the cross with pain and agony. And the crowds are crowds are there, hundreds of thousands of them. And they watch and wait, and they watch and wait, and nothing happens. And Judas, at the feet of the cross, says to Jesus, do it, do it now. Show them. And Jesus tries. The mic.
1: What's wrong with the mic?
0: Why didn't you say so earlier? You have missed my entire wisdom. (laughs) We'll just start again. I don't know what's wrong with the mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. okay, so Jesus tries, he tries hard, he tries to pull his hands and his feet off the nails and it's not working. And he dies with the most famous words ever pronounced by a human being on his lips. He says, oh God, why, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words could only be pronounced by a man who believed or at least half believed to the last moment that his father in heaven will take him off the cross. Judas was right that it's going to happen and it's not happening. And Judas realizes when Jesus dies on the cross, He realizes that he killed his teacher, his rabbi, his spiritual father, his beloved man. He killed him with his own hands. And he goes and hangs himself. This is the version of Shmuel Ash. Is this the true version? Is this how things really happened? I don't know, I had a dentist appointment (laughs) on that that morning. But I think Shmuel Ash's version is much more convincing then the impossible and ugly stories in the Gospels. In a sense, Judas, in Shmuel Asher's version, believes in Jesus much more than Jesus ever believed in himself. And when Judas hangs himself, Shmuel writes, thus died the first Christian The last Christian, the only Christian. Very provocative words, and in some Roman Catholic countries in Europe, they were painful for some readers, I know it. I've always been fascinated by the question of treason. Who and what is a traitor? Partly because I've been called a traitor many, many times in my life by some of my own fellow countrymen, for my politics. And Shmuel Ash says that very often throughout history, not always, but very often, a traitor is he who changes in the eyes of those who will never change, who despise change, who regard change as treason, who hate change. I'm not speaking about the trite, banal traitor who sells the the formula of a a manufactory to the competition for money. Uninteresting. I'm talking about those individuals in history who were labeled traitors, and some of them were killed as traitors by some of their own fellow countrymen simply for being ahead of their time. The prophet Jeremiah, who told the people of Jerusalem, don't try to fight against the whole world. Don't try to behave as a superpower, you are not. Don't try to force your ambition on other peoples because you are not strong enough to do this. Very actual words, very contemporary words. He was hated and despised by the kings and by the people. He was put in jail. You should have read the, 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 uh, the uh, hate mail he received, the talkbacks of that time. Here in this country, Abraham Lincoln, the liberator of the blacks, the black slaves, He was was labeled a traitor by millions of Americans who fought against him, a bloody civil war, and ultimately paid with with his life. The brave German officers who tried to kill Hitler in 1944, they were executed as traitors. Winston Churchill, when he dismembered the British Empire, millions of Brits called him a traitor, or Charles de Gaulle when he took France out of North Africa and gave the, not the Palestinians, the Algerians their freedom. He was labeled a traitor by millions of French people and they tried, they attempted to kill him. A, very recently, Gorbachev disembarking the communist bloc, he was regarded by Orthodox communists, He is still regarded as a traitor, and in our own Israeli history Theodor Herzl the founding father of modern zionism was called a traitor by many loyalist zionists because he considered uganda as a temporary alternative homeland for the jews he was called a traitor david ben-gurion the founding father of the state of israel was labeled a traitor by many militant Israelis who opposed the idea of partitioning the biblical homeland into two sovereign states, Israel and Palestine, which I think was not a bad idea right from the beginning, right from the outstart. Anwar Sadat, who came all the way to Jerusalem to address the Knesset and stretch out his hand for peace with Israel, He was and is regarded as a a traitor by millions of Arabs and he paid with his life. Menachem Begin, who gave back the whole of Sinai in return for peace with Egypt, was and is regarded as a traitor by militant Israelis. Rabin and Peres, who recognized the existence of a Palestinian national movement. They were labeled traitors by many Israelis and Rabin even paid with his life for this. Even Ariel Sharon, who dispatched his bulldozers to raise his own settlements in Gaza, he was called a traitor by many Israelis. And of course, creators, writers, intellectuals like Thomas Mann or Emil Zola or Solzhenitsyn or Pastor Nak, or, for that matter, very many American creators in the days of, of McCarthyism, they were labeled traitors. You know, it's a wonderful company. If I compare the club of traitors to the club of non-traitors in history, I'm not sure which club is more respectable. (laughs) When they call me traitors, some people in my own country, I wear this as a legion d'honneur on my lapel. I'm very proud to be in this company. And here will come my one and only political Interior Israeli political comment, And those of you who do not like it, just put it in, inside a pair of brackets. The day Israelis will start calling Netanyahu a traitor, I will know that something is moving at long last. <laughs> Close brackets. All right. Treason and loyalty are a central issue in the novel, but they are not the heart of the novel. They are, essentially. It's a story about love and desire, longing, loneliness, loss, pain, timidity, defeat, search, concession, death, desire remorse, the great and simple things which every one of us experience to some extent. Very hard to write about those subjects because every reader can check on me. Every single reader can say, you don't know the first thing about loss and loneliness and desire and death and timidity. I could tell you, I could teach you. Everyone can check on me. And this is also a story about divided Jerusalem, which is almost a character in Jerusalem, in, in the novel. Jerusalem of the late 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, an injured city, a bitter city, painful and beautiful and proud and very creative and very independent-minded. I miss that Jerusalem, I have to confess. I miss that divided and and bleeding Jerusalem of the late 50s and the early 1960s. In this novel, the woman, Atalia, is almost synonymous to the city of Jerusalem. Proud, injured, bitter, original, attractive, very strong-minded, very independent. I think of her in that winter. And I think of the city of Jerusalem in this winter, in that winter, 59 and 60, and I hear a lone sound of a cello, a a lone cello note on a winter night. So this is about Jerusalem, and this is about the great and simple things in the world. This is a very... Basic novel. Three people are sitting for a whole winter in a closed room. Rain and wind are beating at the shutters from the windows from outside. And they talk and talk and talk and drink gallons of tea. This is not the beginning of a joke. This is my novel. (laughs) When I wrote it, I thought very few people will read it. No violence. No intrigue no Palestinians and Jewish settlers, no uh, tycoons, no Mossad agents, no Holocaust. Some sex, but it only comes on page 260 or so, very late in the novel. Why would anyone read a novel about three eccentrics who talk and drink tea, the whole book, and still people read it? To my utter amazement, This book had become a a best-selling book in 15 different countries and in Israel, read by hundreds of thousands and discussed everywhere. Why, I still don't know, but they are different. They they come from three different planets. The old man, Gershon Wald is a bitter skeptic, sometimes a cynic. He believes in no ideology. No religion, no faith. To him, every single religion, regardless, every single gospel, regardless where it comes from, every single idea of salvation, every single form of world reforming begins with wonderful hopes and ideas and ends with rivers of blood and torture chambers and persecution and discrimination and jihad and crusade and inquisition and gulags and gas chambers. Leave the world alone. The world is not at all wonderful in Gershon Waal's view. It's a terrible place. But anyone who tries to improve or to change it ends up spilling even more innocent blood. Leave it alone. Leave it as is. The young man, Shmuel Ash, He is a great idealist. He is a world reformer. He decorates his room where he moves when he gets the job of a caregiver to the old men. He decorates his room with posters of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. (laughs) He believes in instant revolution, instant redemption, instant world reforming. He believes in a formula. Obviously, those two are alien to each other. They mock each other, especially the old man is mocking the idealism of the young man. They dislike one another initially. And in the middle, there is Atalia. She is middle-aged, angry, injured, bitter, sometimes resentful toward the entire male sex. To Atalia, the men, men have been running the world for thousands of years and turned the whole world, the whole world into a perpetual slaughterhouse. Men, in her view, are eternal, eternal teenagers who will never grow up. They need their egos watered twice a day, or else they become monsters. She has reasons, and I'm not going to give you a spoiler. She has reasons to be so resentful about men. She takes them to bed, many of them. She changes men like other people change socks. But she doesn't trust them. and She doesn't like them. And in fact, she looks down on men, all of them, including including poor Shmuel Ash, who is half her age, but he is ignited with a fierce physical sexual desire to this attractive woman. Somewhere in the course of the novel, this fierce sexual desire, it's not extinguished, it's not diminished, but it is transformed into a gentle, tender, considerate, attentive, curious love. Where exactly in the book this happens, I don't know, and I have read this book quite a few times. <laughs> I don't even know where those two total strangers become a family. Yes, they become a family, parents and child, in a way. They almost love one another toward the end. And yes, I read and reread this book, and I don't find the exact page, or paragraph, or scene, or dialogue, or trialogue, were those three total strangers. where they become so close to each other, and yes, so dear to each other? Apart from those three, there are some ghosts in the house. I don't mean ghosts wrapped in, in white sheets and making funny noises at night, no. But the ghost of Jesus is in the book. And the ghost of Judas is very much in the book because this is the subject of Shmuel Ashes' would be a, a, a postgraduate thesis. And there is the ghost of Micha Wald, the only son of the old man and the husband and beloved friend partner of Atalia. He died a terrible, terrible monstrous death in Israel's War of Independence in 1948. And there is the ghost of Shealtiel Abravanel, Atalia's father, a big traitor, a man who was part of the Zionist leadership, a member of the Zionist executive, a member of the directory of the Jewish agency, the shadow government of the Jews in British Palestine. And he was the only one among them who objected the idea of creating a Jewish state, objected Ben-Gurion, and he was kicked out and, 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 and ostracized and boycotted and hated by everybody and died like a lonely dog in a self-imposed home arrest in his home regarded by everyone as a traitor to Zionism. Don't Google him. There was no Shalti, there was Propanel. No, there was no living model for this character. But he represents, along with the others, each one in his or her own way, the living and the dead, they all represent in different ways the roads not taken. This is the invisible subtitle for my novel, The Roads Not Taken. Abravanel never advocated a binational state of Jews and Arabs, no. He was against the very idea of national states altogether, He believed in a pluralistic world with several religions and cultures and civilizations and traditions and languages and cultures, but not a single nation state. No armies, no boundaries, no passports, no air force, no bombs, no missiles. Why don't we all live like a big Divided, pluralistic family. Why create a tiny little Jewish state through blood and fire and engage ourselves in an everlasting fighting with the Arabs and with Islam? When the whole idea of nation-state is anachronistic, it's fading away, it's going to die, it's going to vanish very soon, says Abravanel. A world divided into hundreds of little nation-states with boundaries to Abravanel is like a zoo where different animals are put in different cages. Gershom Wald sardonically responds to the ghost of Abravanel by saying, yes, when people behave like savage beasts, maybe it's a good idea to put them in different cages. Moreover, Gershom Wald and way behind him the ghost of Ben-Gurion. I say the ghost of Ben-Gurion, When the novel takes place in Jerusalem, Ben-Gurion is still very much alive. He is still the the king of Israel, the mythological prime minister and defense minister. But his ghost is in the house. It's taking part in the seminary. And Vald and Ben-Gurion behind him, they say, yes, a world with no nations, a world with no states, a world with no boundaries, no armies... It's a wonderful idea, but why should we, we Jews be the first ones? We have given the world for 2,000 years a one-man show or a one-people show of a people with no boundaries, no nation, no country, no army, and the world audience sometimes applauded, more often threw rotten eggs at the actors and even more often simply cut the throat of the actor. So. As long as everyone else in this world have bars on their windows and locks on their doors, why should the Jews not have the same for the time being? When the day comes and everybody knocks down the walls between them, And the time of universal brotherhood materializes. Oh, we Jews will be delighted to knock our own walls and give up our own Zionist Jewish state and join the orgy. But we will not be the first ones. For a change, out of caution, out of painful experience, we will be maybe the fourth one in the neighborhood and the tenth one in the world. We don't have to be the pioneers again. It's a fierce argument, and I am on both sides in this argument. Don't ask me where I am. This novel is not a manifesto. It is a painful and fierce argument. There is also an argument between the ghost of Jesus and the ghost of Abrabanel on the one hand, and Gershom Wald and Ben-Gurion on the other. Jesus believes in universal love, and Abrabanel believes in universal love. He is equivalent to Jesus. Not to Judas the traitor, to Jesus. They both believe in universal love and universal brotherhood. Whereas Gershom Wald says, careful. We are not created to love everyone. We are created, structured, all of us, to love five people, 10 people. Some of us perhaps love 15 people. If anyone tells you that he loves Latin America (laughs) or she loves the third world, or he loves the female sex, he loves no one. This is not love. this is a cliché. Love is a rare mineral, intimate mineral. There cannot be universal love. There is no way of loving every, every stranger. It's impossible. Moreover," says Gershomwald, "Love is not at all sweet. And he says that these two. Shmuel Ash, the child of the 60s, the child of make love not war, the child is all you need is love, the child of the flower generation, the child of the hippies, the child of of faith in some instant redemption through love and nonviolence. Be careful, says Wald. Love is not a couple walking barefoot in a field of flowers toward the rising sun. Forget about this sentimental cage. Love can be selfish and hedonistic and domineering, and sometimes the lover wants to dominate or to enslave himself or herself, to control, to possess, to monopolize the beloved ones. It's not a trustworthy emotion. You cannot base the future of the world on love, try to base it on on non-violence, try to base it on justice, try to base it on decency, not on love. Love can easily turn into violence. Wald even quotes Thomas Mann, who wrote that hatred is simply love put into brackets and, and forwarded by the mathematical minus sign. Yes, they are very similar love and hatred. Note, when we love someone, we cannot stop thinking about the beloved one. What is she or he doing right now? Is he or she warm enough? Had he or she eaten? Whom is he or she seeing now? Is he or she happy right now? When we hate somebody, almost the same, we can't let the hated one off our radar screen. What is he or she doing now? Who is she or he seeing right now? Is he or she, heaven forbid, happy right now? (laughs) Very similar, very similar. Don't trust love, says Gershom Wald, arguing with Jesus Christ and with Abravanel. It's not good enough. It's not trustworthy. So I'm just giving you a teaser, really. I'm not telling you the whole novel. (laughs) Uh, But this book, is not a seminar. There are different worldviews, different ideas. I try to make each one of them as convincing as I possibly could. Don't ever try to find me in the novel. I have not written this novel in order to tell my readers, vote Abravanel, or vote Gershom Wald, or vote Ben-Gurion, or vote Jesus Christ, or vote Judas. This Judas, who is so deeply admired by by Ash, his great rehabilitator, this Judas is in some way a terrible fanatic. He wants instant redemption right now. He risks and even sacrifices his teacher for the sake of his impatience for instant redemption right now through one single miracle, one single revolutionary act. Wald doesn't like it. Ben-Gurion doesn't like it. Shmuel Ash himself is becoming skeptical about universal redemption. So I have not written this book to put myself behind one of them. I was playing tennis with myself on two courts simultaneously, trying to be as efficient and good and elegant on both sides of the net, or if you wish, on all four sides of the net. You want my politics, you will find them in the internet, not in my novel. I would never take the trouble to waste five years of my life to cope with this monster simply to tell my government to go to hell or to tell the Israelis to stop oppressing the Palestinians or to tell the people in the world to start loving one another. This is not written to send a message. This is written to tell a story and the inner story is a story about compassion and about, as I said earlier, the minor miracle, secular miracle, of total total strangers becoming very close to one another, very dear to one another at the end of the novel. I would even say, cautiously, almost love one another toward the end of the novel. It took me five years to cope with this monster. I dropped it twice. I despaired. I thought, let Dostoevsky come and finish it. It's too heavy for me. <laughs> I thought maybe William Faulkner will do the job for me. It's too big for me. I dropped it. The drafts swelled into more than 1,000 pages, and I sliced it mercilessly because I wanted to be this to be a novel with no fat. There's one chapter in this novel, chapter 47 which is the only big digression in time. It takes place on the day of the crucifixion in Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem. And it lasts, this chapter, a few hours between Jesus dying on the cross in the early afternoon of the Friday, the eve of Passover, and Judas hanging himself four or five hours later. I wrote an early draft. 60 pages. I said, this cannot be. It's going to drown the whole boat. Must be shorter. I threw the draft away. I rewrote it again. 80 pages. (laughs) I destroyed this again and again. Finally, chapter 47 consists of 10 pages in Hebrew, maybe 11 or 11 and a half in English. English is always less sparse and less algebraic than Hebrew. Even the Bible in English is about 30% longer than the Hebrew original, but that's a different topic. However, I tried to make this book very compact and very thin, and this is hard, this was hard. And finally, the heart of the book, the big treason. The big traitor is not Judas, not Abravanel. the two, if you wish, Obvious traitors in this novel, no. The biggest traitor of all is Shmuel Ash himself, who has a pair of loving parents in Haifa. They love him, they are invested in him, they pay his tuition, they believe in his future, they they place their hopes on him, and for complex reason, he doesn't love them back. And for one winter, he betrays them by adopting a different father, and a different mother for one winter. This is the biggest treason of all. Finally, he even sleeps with the new mother. But according to Sigmund Freud, we all do that. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, they change. People change. You know, this may be another political aside. I know many of you are shocked and terrified by the outcome of your presidential election. And I have not a word of comfort to you, and I, I don't have any good tidings about the future. But let, let me tell you that I have lived a long life, and people do change, not always for the better, but they change. This chair will never change. One day it will decompose, but it will never change. This cup will never change. It will always remain a cup. But people do change. People even surprise themselves. There is not one in this audience, and I don't know I can't even see you because the lights are in my eyes. There is not one of you, a man or a woman, who have not at least once or twice in in life surprised herself or himself so much that you ask yourself, is it really me doing this or saying this? Is it really me? People do surprise themselves. I have seen the traditional leader of the Israeli, hardline right-wingers, Menachem Begin, give back the whole of Sinai to the Egyptians in return for peace with Egypt. No labor leader was ready to do that. I have seen Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin, and I knew them both quite well. One of them was a personal friend. And they both were very trivial, hardline hawks when I met them. And they changed before my eyes, not overnight. And they ended up in Oslo, recognized the Palestinian national movement, and recognized the idea of a two-state solution. And that happened before my eyes. I saw them changing. And I even saw Ariel Sharon's bulldozers destroy Ariel Sharon's own beloved settlements in Gaza. I have seen this. You have seen changes. You have seen people change. Would your new president change? I don't know. Maybe he will change for the worst. All I am saying is that people are never totally closed up. They change. They are liable to surprise themselves and others. By the way, I make a living by writing stories and novels about the way people change each other as they do in Judas. Shmuel, Ash, and Gershom, Wald, and Atalia, they change each other. Shmuel, who enters the novel as a fiery world reformer, a cross between a, a, a Castro and Che Guevara lover of the 50s and a hippie of the 60s, he ends up asking himself very hard questions. In fact, he ends up as a, skept, as a skeptic intellectual. Gershon Wald, who lost his only son, ends up the novel, this harsh, skeptic, bitter man who tries to kill the rest of his emotions because he was badly injured. He ends up losing an only son for the second time in his life. And Atalia, who in the beginning of the novel, asks Shmuel viciously, how come you were not killed in the wars? Please explain yourself. How come you survived? There must be something fishy about you. In the end of the novel, this man-hating woman, this condescending woman who who is a feminist long before feminism, she ends up saying to Shmuel Ash. There is one thing, one thing that you can do better than any other man in the world, and this thing is paper boats. I almost had tears in my eyes when she suddenly said that to him. (laughs) Yes, she surprised not just him. She surprised me, and he surprised me. They surprised me. So to sum it all up, what have we had? trism and loyalty, love and desire, faith and facelessness and doubt and skepticism, loneliness, combined loneliness which which is perhaps less of a loneliness which is a lonely loneliness. And finally, in the end of the novel, everything is open-ended like the desert, like the future, like the question what's going to happen to any one of us later tonight, tomorrow, next week. Permit me to conclude by reciting an old Hebrew poem by the poet Leah Goldberg, who died in 1970, a wonderful poet. And this is from a nameless poem by Leah Goldberg, no title. And the, allow me to say, wonderful English translation is by no other than my beloved son, the poet Daniel Oz. If you welcome me into the dead of your darkness, perhaps then my day will be brighter. If you set on my shoulders the bulk of your burden, perhaps then my load will be lighter. Add the chill of your gloom to the, to the frost of my sorrow. Perhaps then my bones will be warmer. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the secular, minor secular miracle of my novel, Judas." This is the optimistic novel in this pain, the optimistic note in this sad and painful novel. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you. you. I'm just
1: gonna get my question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, We're going to, you want to give me the cards? Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask, Amos, you just blew through about 10 of my questions. i really got nothing left. (laughs) So what I'll do is I'll just um, ask things in a slightly different way so it'll seem that your answers are different from (laughs) things you've already said. Um, You can't hear me? Uh No. Can you hear me now?
0: You should speak to turn your head to the right while I turn my head to the left as I should do.
1: Can you hear me now? No? Yes? Yes, better? Is that better? All right. That's very painful. Uh, What? Okay, I think I'm fine now. Um, There's a. In one of Henry James's notebooks, there's a line where he just says, what is there in the idea of too late? And it's something that seems to inform almost everything he writes. Uh, You've spoken about treason. It struck me that uh, all the way from Panther in the Basement through Judas, what is there in the idea of a traitor that you were talking about earlier has informed almost everything you've written. you spoke in broad terms about the issue of being a traitor. More recently, a number of Israeli novelists have been on the left, have been vilified, to put it mildly, by certain extreme elements on the right accused of being traitors. How in battle do writers feel in Bibi's Israel, and how did this sad state of affairs come to pass? And these are questions that in the last few days, as we enter the long nightmare of Donald Trump, seem especially exigent for Americans, too.
0: Well, yes, I said earlier, and I still agree with myself, that sometimes (laughs) being (laughs) called a traitor is a badge of honor, depending who is the one who calls you a traitor, and why he or she are calling you a traitor. It's a badge of honor. It has been a badge of honor here in America in the age of McCarthyism. It has been a badge of honor in many European countries during fascist periods. It has been the badge of honor for many intellectuals, writers, and poets who were simply ahead of that time. The greatness of the Jewish prophets is in the fact that many of their contemporaries regarded them as traitors. But I'll take your question a step further. Any one of us, confronted with the teenager you have once been, many years ago or not so many years ago, maybe some of you in the audience are still teenagers. For them, what I'm going to say is not relevant. But a grown-up person confronting the teenager that he or she once were, this teenager is more likely than not to call you a traitor, not just for the politics, for many reasons ideas, ambitions, intentions, vows. This does not mean that he is always right, he is young, the young self. Very often, this teenager is wrong and simple-minded. Very often, your treason, my treason, our treason, is really a syndrome of maturation, a syndrome of the ability to grasp the complexity of life, and yes, to compromise. You know, in the vocabulary of fanatics, compromise is a dirty word. For them, compromise is lack of idealism. Compromise is dishonesty. Compromise is opportunism. Not in my vocabulary. In my vocabulary, compromise is very often synonymous to life itself and the opposite of compromise is not idealism and the opposite of compromise is not integrity. The opposite of compromise is often
1: fanaticism and death. Thank you. Um, I want to switch a little and ask you about your role in Israeli literature. I've heard from some young novelists that you're extremely kind, that you always read and send a letter to young writers who send you their books. Do you feel you have a role to encourage and support young Israeli novelists? How do you find the time to read everything? And when you you do respond, do you always tell the truth?
0: Let me challenge the premises. I don't have the time to read everything. I only read a small fraction of what is being sent to me. Uh, I am supportive of some young writers not out of kindness, and not out of generosity, but out of curiosity. I am a very curious person, and with the years, I am becoming even more and more and more curious. I want to know what is being written. I don't have a role, and I don't even like the term role combined with the word literature. It has, For me, a combination of literature and role has very unattractive connotations. I prefer to speak about the gift of literature rather than about the role of literature. I don't think literature is a vehicle meant to convey some goods from one point to another, from one person to another, from the writer to the reader. It's not about transporting goods or ideas or or education or gospels. It's about giving us the gift of new perspectives on our own lives. We read a novel, and sometimes in the end of the novel, We may know one or two things about the world which we haven't known before we read the novel. We may know one or two things about foreign countries or foreign periods which we haven't known before. But first and foremost, if it is a good novel, we know one or two things about ourselves which we haven't known before. This is, to me, the criteria for good literature. This is the gift of literature. It's not a tool. It's not a vehicle. I don't read young people's novels or other authors' novels out of kindness or generosity or because I have a role. I read them because I am hugely curious. Perhaps one of them, two of them, some of them have something new to tell me about myself and you know what they do, the good ones they do. And then I am very grateful and I have my ways to express my gratitude.
1: Thank you. Um, I want to go a little further into Trump, as it's on everyone's mind. Um, The US has just elected an an unabashed racist and misogynist into the White House. He's already appointed as his chief strategist, a man who is, among other horrors, a card-carrying anti-Semite. Meanwhile, our uh, Twitter-happy and not-so-well-read president to be has pledged to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And despite the apocalyptic shadings of his policies, he's been greeted enthusiastically by two countries' governments in particular, Israel and Russia. Uh, I think I know from what you've been talking what you think of Trump. But what of the broadening divide between American and Israeli Jews in this regard? The vast majority of American Jews voted against Trump. Well, you know, you say Israeli
0: Jews as if we were a a regular army. You don't ever get two Israeli Jews to agree with one another on anything. It's very hard to get one Israeli Jew to agree with himself or herself because everybody is ambivalent. And this is true about uh, the Israeli responses to Trump. Yes, the Netanyahu government is very enthusiastic. They found a kin in Trump, no doubt. But you know, my thoughts these days are not so much about the future of US-Israeli relationship. My thoughts are more about the future of democracy. I find that in more, in more and more places, including this blessed America, including my own beloved Israel, including many European countries, there is a growing gap, really a contrast, between the virtues which are necessary for a person to be elected for office, and the virtues necessary to lead a nations. They are almost mutually exclusive. If you have what it takes to become a head of state, you don't have what it needs to be a leader. If you have what it needs to be a leader, you will not be elected. This is what worries me, and this is true not only of America. Yeah. Also, if you wish, the sad fact that in many countries, including here, politics is becoming an extension of the entertainment industry. People vote because it's fun. People vote because it's exciting. People vote because politics is an extension of a reality television program. People vote because this is a an an exciting children's game. Let's see what happens if we do the most scandalous and the most unthinkable. It will be exciting. It will be interesting. Many Brits voted for Brexit without even asking themselves what's the meaning of Brexit. Without even knowing that the European Union existed.
1: No, they googled it the next day.
0: Yes, the next day they googled it. Maybe the Americans have googled uh, Donald Trump (laughs) the next day. Maybe they have. Some of them. But you know, what really worries me is the Infantilization of humanity, by the mass media, by the, the fact that the the, uh, the big fortune, the system, encourages all of us to become children again. Not because Jesus says you should become innocent like children, no, because children are the best consumers. They buy without conscience. And yes, it is becoming an infantile world. And yes, it is becoming a childish world. And yes, your recent electional campaign was childish, infantile in many ways, not only on one side. And yes, many European politics, many aspects of European politics are infantilized by by becoming part of show business, by becoming a children's game, and this includes my own country unfortunately. This worries me even more than the actual choice of this particular president by the American people. Actually he was not chosen by the American people. He was chosen by a very surreal system of college of electors.
1: She won the Maybe you
0: should change your constitution, slightly amend it, (laughs) and maybe you should legislate. Maybe you should legislate, because it happened twice in the last two decades, and the majority voted for the Democratic candidate, and the Republican became a president. Maybe you should legislate that this country should have presidential elections every four years, but regardless, the president should be a Republican.
1: I'm a Democrat. Um, You talked a little earlier about your friendship with Shimon Peres, and I know that you used to speak every Friday at the same time for almost 40 years. In your very beautiful eulogy for your friend, you said, there are some who say that peace is not possible, but peace is not only possible, it's inevitable. Because we Israelis are simply not going anywhere, we have nowhere to go from here. And the Palestinians are not going anywhere either. They too have nowhere to go from here. Since the Israelis and the Palestinians can't suddenly become one big happy family, and they can't simply hop into a conjugal bed and embark on a honeymoon together, there is no choice but to divide this home into two apartments and turn it into a two-family house. In their heart of hearts, almost everyone on all sides knows this simple truth. But where are the leaders with the courage to come forward and bring it to pass? Where are the heirs of Shimon Peres? So to return to the idea of too late, what are you most concerned about and most hopeful about when thinking about Israel today and, as you indicate here, 10 or 20 years from now? All right. First, yet another fair disclosure. Shimon
0: Peres and I were close friends for 40 years. We talked a great deal about many things. But I never voted for him, not once in those 40 (laughs) years, and he knew it. And it never stood in the way of our friendship. Never once. This is in brackets. Now, uh, what worries me most is the fact that there, there is a very striking lack of courageous leadership on both sides, in Israel and in Palestine. And the good news is that back, deep down in their hearts, the majority of the Israeli Jews and the majority of the Palestinian Arabs know that in the end of the day, there is no alternative to partitioning the country into two sovereign states. Many people don't like it on both sides. It's not going to be, in the famous last words of Casablanca, the beginning of a wonderful friendship. But it may be the beginning of a nonviolent, unhappy coexistence of unsympathetic neighbors. There is no alternative. They really are not going anywhere, those Palestinians. So Well, would they go? Where would the Israeli Jews go? They cannot leave together the idea of a binational state of Jews and Arabs in Israel slash Palestine, is to me an insane idea, or if you wish, a childish idea. All binational states or multinational states in recent decades collapsed into terrible bloodshed Cyprus, Lebanon, Yugoslavia, the former Soviet Union, Iraq, Syria, even Belgium is quaking. Spain is quaking, the United Kingdom is quaking, Canada is making funny noises. So to advise the Jews and the Palestinians to become one family right now, for God's sake. This is like proposing in 1945, immediately after the end of World War II, that Poland and Germany become one nation. Yellow buses and integration. 50 years later, maybe, gradually. Step one, two states. Step two, maybe drop for coffee on each other, preferably Palestinian (laughs) coffee, which is infinitely better than Israeli coffee. (laughs) Later on, even starting telling jokes about our past follies. Then perhaps start cooking our meals together in the kitchen because it's a very small apartment. Shared economy. Then perhaps a common market, maybe a federation, maybe a union, but step one ought to be a fair, if painful, divorce, simply because there is no alternative. The good news, most people know it on both sides, in their heart of hearts. They don't like it, but they know it. Bad news, the patient is unhappily ready for the surgery, but the doctors are cowards on both sides.
1: I have two short questions for you, and then I'm going to uh, read some of the audience's questions. The first is that, um, this is switching up a little. Uh, Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize seems to have upset or offended some American writers. What do you think about it? Very surprising choice and extremely
0: popular choice.
1: And uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Like. Okay, my. It's a good answer. Uh, my last question, that for me, uh, is about the film of A Tale of Love and Darkness, and I just wanted to ask what kind of experience it was for you, if you've seen the film, to see both yourself and Natalie Portman portray your part of your mother in that movie.
0: Yes, I have seen the film. No, I don't think I want to share with you what kind of experience it is for any human being to watch his own childhood, including very dramatic moments personified by others on the cinema screen. I don't think I could share this experience. But I could tell you that Natalie Portman's film is a labor of love, low-keyed, cautious, delicate full of devotion to the novel and full of the realization that the fil- film cannot possibly be and should not even try to be a reflection of the novel you know i said to natalie the first conversation she and i had about about her idea i said for god's sake be unfaithful in order to be loyal mm-hmm. and i also said Filming a novel is like playing a violin concerto on the piano. You can do this, you can even do this quite successfully on one strict condition. Never, ever try to force the piano to produce the sounds of the violin.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. I think we have time just for a couple of these questions from the the audience. Uh, Considering the leaders in power in countries around the world, one wonders what should we do now? In light of this, do you believe that art can change the world?
0: Well, you know, what can we do now? I have a problem with the word we, who exactly are we in this question? You can't hear me. All right. Ah, can you hear me now? Good. I should have done this right from the outset. Uh, what could we do about the present situation? I have some problem with the word we here, because I don't know exactly what the person who asks the question means by we. I tell you what I do. I do what I can. The fire, the flames are big and horrific. Every one of us has to choose confronting a big fire. You can run for your life and leave those who cannot run to burn because, unfortunately, they cannot run. You can write an angry letter to the editor blaming those who started the fire. But you can also take a bucket of water and pour it on the fire. And if you don't have a bucket, use a glass or a cup. And you don't even have that, use a. A teaspoon, every one of us has a teaspoon, fill it with water and throw it in the fire. The teaspoon is very small and the fire is very large, but there are many of us and every one of us has a teaspoon. That's my simple answer to this question. I do what I can as a teacher, as a writer, as a neighbor, as a citizen, to pour some water on the flames of hatred, and incitement, and fanaticism, and bigotry, and prejudice. I have words, and I use words. These My words are my teaspoon. This is what I can do. What can you do? What can the person who asked the question do? This is a question only you can answer. But I can tell you there is something you can do. Something you can do. I know that. I don't know what it is. But there is something every one of you can do. Do it.
1: One, one more. Okay. This is the last question uh, from the audience, which is somehow perfect for to end an evening at the YMHA. Based on your reading of the Gospels, which is your favorite, and why?
0: Which of the Gospels is my favorite? Well, my favorite is not any one of the Gospels. My favorite is Jesus Christ Himself. I love this man, although I disagree with him greatly. I don't think for a split second that he was a god or a son of god. He was a rebellious Jew, and I love rebellious Jews. He was a non-Orthodox Jew, and I love non-Orthodox Jews, even when I don't agree with them. He tried to purify Judaism from a lot of fat that gathered and sticked to it, and I love it. He never meant to start a new religion, oh no. He was born a Jew and he died a Jew, and he never dreamt of being a Christian. Never. You know, this God of the Christian religion, he never crossed himself, not once in his life. He had no reason to. He never set foot in a church. There were no churches in his day. Never in his life. He went to many synagogues. Many times he went to synagogues. He evoked scandals in synagogues, but he went to synagogues all right. What kind of a Christian is he if he never crossed himself, never frequented the church? He was born a Jew. He died a Jew. I feel familiar to him. I feel kinship with him. I love him. And I fiercely disagree with him about universal love and about uh, knowing not what we are doing when we are doing painful things to other people. I love him, and I I challenge him. That's my attitude to many Jews, not just to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92 yondemandorg